Welcome to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by Team Snap and hosted by veteran soccer broadcaster, Dean Linky. Uniting coaches at every level of the game around the love of the game, we are United Soccer Coaches. Now, here's our host, Dean Linky. I am Dean Linky. Got another great show for you today. And if you've been paying attention, you have been seeing this mass movement toward men's Division I soccer going to a full academic year, calendar year season with games in the fall, games in the spring, and a pinnacle championship primarily based on scientific research that affects physical and mental health, recovery, and the like with all the midweek games, games Tuesday, Friday, Sunday, or Tuesday, Thursday. Thursday, Sunday, you know the deal. Men's D1 with Sasha Sorosky leading the charge as the chair and so many great coaches across the country and so many conferences now. Rob Kehoe is the director of college programs for United Soccer Coaches. He was in the Big Ten offices this week getting ready to submit the final report tomorrow to the NCAA as they draw closer to a vote in April. While this is going on, the D1 women's coaches are saying, wait, hang on, we want in too, at least some of them. Randy Waldrum, great success at Notre Dame, now at Pittsburgh, was leading the charge. We've heard from Anson early on talking about his interest in it. Amanda Cromwell agrees that the women should start right now. Colin Carmichael, also a great coach at Oklahoma State, now in his 14th season, thinks, hey, we should pump the brakes, see how it works out for the men, and then go from there. We'll hear from both Amanda Cromwell from UCLA and Colin Carmichael from Oklahoma State. Then we've got a great visit with Samantha Snow. She is the chair of the Women's Advocacy Group for United Soccer Coaches. She'll talk about all the great things they've got going on around the convention and some key initiatives this year. And then we'll meet one more member of our 30 Under 30 class, Michael Bates, assistant coach out at Santa Clara, where he also played. We start with Rob Keough after this message from our presenting sponsor, Team Snap. Does managing your club or league feel like a second job? If so, you might need some help. With Team Snap, you can get it. Their customers save up to 15 hours each week on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Plus, everything you need is online, which means no more trips to the bank, no more lost checks, and no more colossal spreadsheets. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to TeamSnap.com to find out more. Once again, here's Dean Linky. And welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. As I mentioned in the opening of the show, we're going to lead off with an important segment pertaining to college soccer with United Soccer Coaches Director of College Programs, Rob Kehoe. And Rob is going to bring us up to speed on the hottest college soccer topic that's been on the burner for a while, but has certainly really heated up in the recent months and even days. And Rob, after six years of amazingly hard work on the Division I men's model to change the playing season, it seems like you've gained some traction have reached a long-awaited, quote, doorstep. If you can, Rob, give us a Cliff Notes version of the initiative to bring us up to date. Well, thanks, Dean. Yes, it's been significant amount of work and some tremendous efforts on behalf of so many of the Division One men's college coaches uh, guided by the leadership of Sasha Sarovsky at the University of Maryland who's chaired the committee working on what's called the 21st century model where the Division One men's coaching community has been trying to 
gained sponsorship for a proposal that would allow them to play championship soccer in both semesters uh, that would spread out the competition, provide basically a one-game-per-week championship format where they'd play a little over half the season in the fall and then the other half of the season in the spring and then conclude the championships with conference tournaments and the NCAA tournament in the spring as opposed to playing them in November and December. So the idea is to change the season structure to provide more rest and recovery between games, a proper balance between academic, personal life, and athletics uh, in the college experience, provide a better preseason acclimatization period so that they're better prepared coming off of the summer break. And so it's been a lot of work. As I mentioned, Sasha Swarovski has been uh, the committee leader of this for many years uh, and then has had a significant amount of assistance from people like Carlos Samuano uh, of UNC, Jeremy Gunn uh, from Stanford, and Kevin Grimes from Cal uh, in the Pac-12, Mike Noonan from the ACC, Todd Yankley from the Big Ten, Jay Vitovich from the ACC, Mike Brizendine from the ACC, all on the three major conferences that have now come in to co-sponsor the legislation uh, that is being prepared for submission into the NCAA legislative concept even this Friday. I'm actually at the Big Ten office right now working with Associate Commissioner Chad Hawley on refining the details of the proposal uh, for submission that goes into the legislative process and then we'll go through a number of comment periods and then being prepared for voting in April in hopes that this would be adopted and prepared for uh, implementation the 2022 season. So it's been a lengthy process, but as you said, uh, we, we've reached an important doorstep and getting it into the NCAA legislative cycle is a very significant step. Well, as you know, we've talked about it on the Big Ten Network and on FS1. The folks over at ESPN have also been talking about it as the push is on for sure. You know, one of the key things is is the women are now starting to consider it. As you know, following you is Amanda Cromwell from UCLA, and she's very much behind the women jumping in. Earlier we've heard from Randy Waldrum. I think Anson Dorrance is also behind it. Colin Carmichael the very successful coach at Oklahoma State is not so sure. We'll also get his take as we like to have an open platform here. But right now the proposal, Rob, as you know, is just for Division One men. How do you see this playing out as it appears that the current structure for college soccer in all divisions is certainly under the microscope? Do you think change is on the horizon? Well, yes, I do. Um, and in that the attention given has been to the Division I men's proposal. And historically on this, uh, when the proposal was developed back in 2013, and I began to have the discussions internally at the NCAA about this, I met the chief medical officer of the NCAA and presented the proposal to him, and he looked at it and he said, this makes a lot of sense on many levels because of what has already been mentioned, the balance of the personal, the academic, as well as the athletic, and the health and safety, rest and recovery, all those matters. 
And he said, you know, we really need to study this because we don't have data on this. And so what that did was led to, in 2015, an NCAA Soccer Sports Science Summit that included uh, leaders from United States Soccer, Major League Soccer, um, the NCAA, all three divisions. And so they commissioned a study that was a three-year study that was conducted by the Corey Springer Institute out of the University of Connecticut, and the study concluded in uh, 2018 and was recently reviewed by what is called the Committee on Competitive Safeguards and Medical Aspects of Sports of the NCAA, and the conclusions found for soccer that we need a better preseason acclimatization period because there's a substantial increase in injuries in that time frame coming out of a summer vacation period. Uh, also, the rest and recovery between games is an issue, but not only for Division One men, but also for all three divisions, both men and women, and then this even extends into the NCAA tournament. So now we're looking at this for all three divisions. How do we look at this for science data and then look at the season and how do we accommodate for all of the important things that relate to the health and safety of the student-athlete as well as balancing their academics and making it a good competitive experience. And so looking at the windows that we're working in from basically August to November and into early December, if you have to add days for preseason acclimatization, uh, and maybe need to extend the time between rest and re for rest and recovery between games, that begins to shrink the window, and how does this then factor into the number of competitions that you can have uh, within that window and still play a meaningful NCAA tournament? For instance, Division Three right now plays their NCAA tournament. All their rounds are played either Friday, Saturday, or Saturday and Sunday which basically allows for very minimal rest and recovery between games. So we're looking at this for all three divisions. As you mentioned, the Division One women have taken uh, a increasingly uh, higher level of look at this, exploring what their options might be, because they've been looking to try to expand the window in the fall by trying to get more rest and recovery days for the same reasons the men have. But now as we look at what might be coming through as far as additional preseason acclimatization days that might be required, start shrinking that window a little bit. And so I know the conversation is going on with their group to start looking at what are our options. Do we have uh, options to try to extend the, the fall and then keep our spring similar to what it is, or do we need to begin to look at this for possibly looking at a uh, two-semester model as well? And as I, as you stated, stated, you have interviews with Colin and Amanda coming up, so certainly they'll offer some of their uh, insights on that. But the, the conversation is really heating up now because we're in it with the NCAA committees and championships, which is all relating to what has to give in order to make all of these things, these factors fit uh, for the student-athlete as well as for the sport. And, you know, we're, we'll be in these through the next number of months. 
we'll have guests at our our uh, United Soccer Coaches Convention from the NCAA, from championships and health and safety, uh, playing rules that are all having to weigh in on this topic. Yesterday I had a conversation with the president of research for the Corey Stringer Institute that conducted the study and we we discussed the possibility of him even coming to our convention to make presentations to help uh, clarify these issues for our coaches. So a lot going on uh, relating to this, as you said, very hot topic. Well, indeed, and as you said, you're going to submit the report tomorrow, um, Friday, and with that report, it could be smoke we're seeing come out of the top of an NCAA volcano, right? Well, I think so, and where there's smoke, there's fire, and and, uh, and so, again, it's been percolating for, for six years, and again, now that it goes into the, the Division One men's goes into the uh, legislative cycle on Friday, the first question that will be asked, what about the women? So the Division One women will have to have a position uh, on this. And then the extended questions are, well, what about Divisions Two and Divisions Three? Because they have the same issues. So we expect that uh, from, from the smoke we'll see some lava coming out as well. And we're prepared to deal with it. We have very good relationships in all of these areas. Uh, with the NCAA and with conferences and member institutions. And so we'll, we'll be very active in this uh, and try to bring things all together to facilitate the right changes that are going to be in the best interest of uh, the soccer playing experience for the college student-athletes. As always, Rob Keel, the Director of College Programs for United Soccer Coaches, on top of this all-important topic. And as he said, we're going to hear from the women. Well, indeed we are. Coming up, Amanda Cromwell, the head coach at UCLA, obviously one of the best programs in the country. And Colin Carmichael, the head coach of the Oklahoma State, on both sides of this issue. Rob Keel, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for all you're doing. Well, Dean, thank you also for making this a topic for the podcast because not only is it important for people in the uh, in the college soccer community to hear this, but certainly for our members and listeners of the show to know what's going on in college soccer because, as we know, the aspirational goals for most youth soccer players are going to be being able to play in college. Uh, some certainly will play beyond that professionally and even internationally, but in our culture, that youth culture all funnels through our college system with few exceptions, and so this is a really, really important area for all of soccer in the United States. So thanks for having me on the show again, and look forward to continued communication. Well said, Rob Keo. Up next, Amanda Cromwell after this message. Registration is now open for the 2020 United Soccer Coaches Convention in Baltimore. Make your plans to join us January 15th through the 19th for five days of coaching education, networking, meal and social functions, award presentations, and more. Register before December 11th to secure the best rate. Visit unitedsoccercoachesconvention.org to learn more. The United Soccer Coaches Convention, your event for all things coaching. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. I want to thank Rob Kehoe, Director of College Programs, for kicking off the show as 
Mad Momentum is going toward D1 men's soccer under the direction of Sasso Swarovski with Rob helping out to go to a full academic year. They will submit a full report to the NCAA by tomorrow, and they hope to vote on it in April for men's D1 soccer, as Rob Keogh talked about. And as I promised, we're going to be joined by Amanda Cromwell for the pro side of women also considering at the D1 level, and then Colin Carmichael from Oklahoma State, who is not so ready for it. He said pump the brakes just a little bit. We'll get his take. But up first, Amanda Cromwell, once again leading UCLA to a top 15 record. They're having a great season. She's already won one national championship, came close to winning another one, and probably got a team good enough this year to win another one as well. Amanda Cromwell joins me. Amanda, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Great to uh, be on, and uh, hopefully we can make a run for another championship this season. That's what I'm talking about. you got a nice yeah. team there. You always do. I mean, you're loving it out there at UCLA, right? I am. It's uh, you know, I'm, I grew up in Virginia on the East Coast, went to UVA, but um, I'm, I'm a little bit of a California girl at heart with the surfing and hiking and just overall um, awesome weather. We've got to do something about these wildfires, though. They're... Um, they uh pretty scary and uh, sad to uh, watch some of this destruction. Yeah, that's so well said. I certainly our thoughts and prayers are with everybody out there near you in L.A. as they're dealing with those wildfires. Thanks for saying that for sure, Amanda. And yeah. I'll tell you what, so you think about your trek from Virginia to Florida and now back out to California, and I kind of trek around as well, but I sit in North Carolina with what we call the UCLA light as I've been the voice of the courage, the first courage and now this courage. And we're loaded with Bruins. Is that why we're winning all the time, talking about the North Carolina courage? Yeah, and you said more. But we always we said UCLA East. We're UCLA West or UCLA East because um, okay. you know D- Darian used to be there. Um, I think what Taylor Smith used to be there. So there was a there was a boatload of Bruins. Uh, there's still quite a few, and I know like Abby and you know Sam connecting to that goal was awesome, and you know Caitlin and McCall and uh, just having having their influence out on that team um is it's fun to watch and um you know especially uh you know the the level of play they've you know they've been able to consistently um exhibit over the past couple of years uh you know Paul's doing a great job with that team yeah it's just amazing and you know what though even beyond the North Carolina courage just women's soccer in general winning another world cup the nwsl college soccer for women great attendance it's a great time to be involved in women's soccer amanda it really is um you can there's definitely a buzz still from the world cup and um we've had great crowds out here we had um i think for our cal game we had uh, people lining up outside they were waiting to get in because it was it was already full i know um you know we've had great atmosphere and then our sd game is already sold out. It's uh, it's one of those games that we, we're not we're having it at our our smaller um, Wallace-Annenberg Stadium and not not the bigger one that we we broke the record and got uh, almost twelve thousand people uh, two years ago. So we're gonna um, you know we're not going for the record this year because we don't have this that that size at this new soccer specific stadium. But um, it's gonna be an awesome atmosphere. It's gonna be like twenty eight hundred people just on top of the field, which is gonna be great. Uh, that warms my heart as uh, I love women's soccer. In fact, Amanda and I were having a laugh beforehand when I said it's always good to connect with those folks that uh, I knew in the early 90s. And, of course, you said, what are you talking about? <laughs> I love that answer because uh, we got to keep on going, right, Amanda? Keep on plugging I was like, are you talking about me? I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> 
I'm in, I'm in the weight room with our girls. I'm doing uh, I'm doing body weight pull-ups these days. I think I'm doing more pull-ups now than I did 10 years ago. I'm not surprised. You look great. You're doing great. And certainly uh, we're so happy to have you on, particularly as it relates to this new kind of push for women's D1 to also consider this 21st century model. You've heard all the noise on the men. They're going to vote on it in April. And Sasha Sarotsky, who you I'm sure know well because he's married mm-hmm. to Cannon Higgins, who you played with yep. as well with the U.S. national team. Uh, now, it, Randy Waldrum has been very vocal as well as even on the list serve for United Soccer Coaches saying, hey, we got to get on board now. I think that's your take as well, Amanda. Why do you think D1 women should also consider this year-round full academic year? Well, I think it's, it makes sense for the sport. Um, overall, I think having one game a week with an occasional midweek game is the model, you know, throughout the world. Um, and, you know, you look at student athlete welfare, um, trying to reduce injuries, um, reduction in missed class time if we can have it on the weekends and, and actually spread it out so we're not crunching so many games, um, to such a tight window and, um, and coaches, we don't feel like we have chances to develop our kids and really train during our season. It's always about recovery and then preparation for the next game. And um, I would love to be able to develop them during the season and, and actually get uh, to a point where we can and work on some things in training that, uh, you know, you want to work on, you know, tactical, some technical things, you know, there's so many more things we want to do, but we just don't, we can't find the time. And, and some of it is off the field stuff. We want to do some more, you know, go 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 down to the boathouse and get them in some crew boats and do some team bonding and building. And but you know, we've we just struggled to find a window to do that. And so I think overall mental health, I think overall physical health, uh, it just makes sense. Here with Amanda Cromwell, the excellent head coach of the UCLA women's soccer team, talking about D1 women considering also the full academic year. Uh, how do you feel about fast forwarding the women's push? That is not waiting, like, for instance, Colin Carmichael says, hey, why can't we wait two years to see if it works for the men? Are you ready to go now, or do you think you need to wait? I think we should – I don't know. I think we should do it at the same time. Why wait? Um, and I would have to look at the arguments of, of why wait. Uh, I think we've done something for quite a while now that we've, we've kind of proven that we, we definitely need something longer. But with with all the studies being done with um, you know, student-athlete welfare – they're, they're likely to take games away from us in our shortened season, so they have more rest and um, the, the required time off. So if they're going to take games away from us, why would we wait? That doesn't make any sense to me. Now, what about the notion that this will make a big impact on players 1 through 16, but players, you know, 17 through 32, it just adds maybe a little more stress to their life because they're not playing that much as well. I've heard Randy Waldron say, well, this gives them more time to perhaps develop as soccer players and increase their confidence and that type of thing. What's your take on that? Yeah, I know, I know traditionally the spring season is seen as a time for the reserves to really shine, but it's like, well, they don't really have time to shine in our our segment our, our segment right now because it's so condensed that there are no real, real training sessions for them to kind of sink their teeth into. It's all about Again, recovery and preparation for the starting group or for the top 15 group or whatever it might be on your team. Um, so I think it gives actually more opportunities to some reserves to show what they have in a training setting on a weekly basis and earn their time and get in there over the course of months rather than, you know, if they don't, if they don't have a certain fitness level or if they get injured, God forbid a kid gets injured. Um, and that's what, you know, we're struggling with that a little bit right now is, you know, 
getting a scope from a meniscus shouldn't take you out for the season. That you know you should be able to get back and play your season from that. Um, and I know, I know there's there's other arguments to be had with that, but um, I think you know either way you're going to have pros and cons. But I think we we have enough cons now with what we're doing that we need to look the what what the men have come up with. Yeah, as you talk about uh, both sides of it, one of the key things that Sasha is pushing is the ability to truly celebrate a national championship. And, yeah, there are times where we have big crowds, you know, for instance, at Wakefoot Soccer Park, they always seem to do it right. But then there are often times where we're playing in snow and there aren't big crowds and the kids got to grind it out on Friday and go two overtimes and penalty kicks and then there's nothing left on Sunday. So having a more pinnacle time in late May, early June to celebrate the greatness of college soccer on both sides is a key selling point. I do. I think that time of year will be incredible for a championship. Um, being able to look at our options there, uh, maybe even having a doubleheader national championship or, or like a Friday-Saturday national championship where um, college soccer is, is celebrated on the men's and women's side the, the same weekend. Um, and being able to not you know, the Final Four, we play all these games Thursday, Sunday, all year long, and then all of a sudden the Final Four, it's Friday, Sunday again. And you know, one one year we, uh, you know, we we played the late game against Duke. We went into overtime and penalties. We weren't back in. The, we had to eat afterwards. We were back at the hotel after midnight on Friday night, and then we had a noon game on Sunday. That kind of recovery is is negligent to me. Uh, you're just setting up these athletes for failure, and it, it's not that kind of. And, and, oh, and by the way, it was in the Florida heat. It was in Orlando. So a noon game. I know they do that for TV and and everything, but. We need to have more of a say with that because, you know, that was really, really tough to try to get athletes back and um, put a lot of stress on them. And that we shouldn't have to do that. We shouldn't have to play a noon game after basically coming back to our hotel, you know, it's early Saturday morning. Uh, and that's just, just uh, to me, that's not looking after student athletes. As uh, we wrap up our conversation with Amanda Cromwell, one of the things that'll be difficult is there's a hundred or so more women's D1 schools than men. So that means even more, for lack of a better word, cat to herd, right? As you try to get everybody yeah. on the same page. Seems pretty audacious right here, but do you think it can happen? I think it can happen. I think it, I think there's maybe more pushbacks from the northern schools or schools that have more spring sports like a lacrosse when they think about facility usage and the weather issues. Um, but I think if we do the schedule right, um, we can, you know, take away some of the weather issues. And it's because the games are spread out, we can take care of some of those scheduling and facility issues. Um, so I think there's a way if people are on, um, you know, have the same goals and we're willing to kind of work through it and, um you know, we get the student athletes on board and really show them like this is this is for you. This is this is for the betterment, and it's not just for the the elite of the elite. I think it will it will benefit all of them. I really do. Uh, and you might see you might see players not choose to go to school with a big roster because they do want to play somewhere else, and and that's not a bad thing. I think some kids go to schools and make decisions and and maybe decide on the school that they. Um, and then maybe they overshoot and they're willing to like, be a walk-on and, and, and try to bide their time kind of thing. But I think if they see, hey, there's a, there's a season where you can really 
sink your teeth into something and you don't have to sit on the bench somewhere. You can go and, and play and uh, I don't know. I think it, it might be appealing to some of those kids that might be on the fringes on, on maybe one of the uh, you know top 20 roster. They might go to a top 50 school and and be happy with getting all that playing time. Amanda Cromwell having another great season. She's such a great coach at UCLA and such a key part of really the history of U.S. soccer. And as uh, she already pointed out, still got like 40, 50 years left to do it. Amanda, thanks so much for being with us. We really appreciate you being on the show. All right. Thank you. All right. Colin Carmichael on the other side of this issue from Oklahoma State after this message. Continue to learn and build your coaching resume by attending one of United Soccer Coaches Winter Advanced Diplomas January 6th through the 10th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. United Soccer Coaches is conducting five advanced diplomas this January. The National, Advanced National, Premier, Advanced National Goalkeeping, and National Youth Diplomas. Go to unitedsoccercoaches.org slash education to learn more about these courses and get registered today. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap as we're having a great discussion about the merits for the women's side of D1 women's soccer to also go to the 21st century model. We know the men are making incredible progress as Rob Kehoe broke down and obviously you heard Amanda Cromwell's take, the fine head coach for UCLA, saying that she thinks the women should also jump right in and be ready. With a little different take and one that says let's pump the brakes just a little bit, Colin Carmichael, the head coach at Oklahoma State, he helped start the program back in 1996 as an assistant coach. He's now in his 14th season as the head coach. His Cowgirls are 13-1-3, number 13 in the country, and look like a team that could make a deep run in the NCAA tournament. And we always enjoy spending time with Colin Carmichael, the head coach of the Oklahoma State women's soccer team. He joins me now. Colin, thanks for being with us. Yeah, sure, no problem. And, Colin, I favor United because you were always a big advocate of the then-named NSCAA Fox Soccer Game of the Week. So we got to come to Stillwater a couple times. Even one of my best memories as a broadcaster was interviewing Garth Brooks. His daughter played for you. So thanks for supplying that memory because I still have a big smile on that one. Yeah, no no problem. And, uh, if uh, Dean, if you ever make it back, we've, we've got a beautiful new $20 million stadium now, and we actually have an indoor area for the TV crews and the media people, so you wouldn't have to be up on the roof. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because for whatever reason, I decided it would be a good idea for me to place my hand on Garth Brooks' stomach while I'm doing his interview. I have no idea why, but it's still one of those, uh, when I do the rotary circuit, they're like, what's the strangest thing you've ever done on a broadcast? And that's number one. I touched Garth Brooks' belly. Can you explain that, Colin? Can you explain why I did that? I, I can't, but I, I wonder if Garth tells that story as well in his circles about one of his that Then I know I would finally have made it if he did, so I don't think he did, that's for sure. That's right. Anyway, thank you. Thanks for the little laugh. All right, well, let's first uh, talk about your season this year, 13-1-3. and I mean, that's pretty solid, Colin. What's making this team so special? Of course, all your teams are pretty special. Yeah, I mean, this group, uh, for sure, have a, they just have a real, really strong mentality. They, they compete in practice. They don't like losing. Um, they seem to like each other, which, you know, that's very important, especially in women's uh, athletics. They, they get along. There's a good bond with them. 
And um, we've got some talented kids. You know, we have a bunch of kids who can score. You know, we've got some nice individual flair players. And then we have a system in play that I think causes uh, other teams a little bit of trouble as well. But I think the main thing is just sort of that, that unity within the group. They're really all pulling in the same direction right now. Over 25 years you've been with the program, 14 years as the solo head coach. Why do you love it there so much, Coach? Well, it's home now. You know, I think uh, when I first moved to Stillwater, it was uh, probably going to be a a stepping stone, hopefully, uh, in my career as I, as I wanted to move on through the ranks in the coaching world. And, um, you know, after three to five years, um, you know, you, you kind of develop uh, an affinity for a place, and I really liked it here. And then as the program became more successful, and I got married, and, um, you know, my kids' grandparents live here, and now it's just home. I just love the community. Uh, it's a great place to raise a family, and, uh, yeah, I couldn't imagine doing this anywhere else right now. Well, you're certainly doing a great job. We wish you the best of luck as you make your way into the NCAA tournament where I suspect you're going to make some noise. And speaking of some noise, there's a lot of discussion, as you know, about the 21st century model. The uh, NCAA is going to vote as it relates to men, Division One in April. And now it's starting to pick up a little bit of traction with the women. Randy Waldrum, formerly at Notre Dame, now at Pittsburgh, a big advocate. We just heard from Amanda Cromwell. And it's not like you're not an advocate. You're just kind of, you know, making sure that uh, both sides of the story are heard. So you did uh, respond to Randy Waldrum as part of the United, this is the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. And as part of that listserv. So I wanted to go over some of um, your discussion points because you also said that you're open to considering it, but you said, hey, we got to make sure we uh, consider some other things. And that is, first off, the clear distinction between men's Division One soccer and women's. There are 205 men's programs with a maximum of 9.9 scholarships and 333 women's programs and a maximum of 14 scholarships. So starting there, that is a big difference, right, Coach? It, it is, and I, and I think it's important that we understand, you know, who, who, are, who are we catering to here? Um, you know, I, I think a lot of the discussion that you read about this model is great for the top maybe 5% of the players um, who might want to be professional players, play in MLS, you know, play in Europe, or in our case, play in the NWSL. Um, but I think we can't lose sight of the fact that, you know, with Title IX and, and, you know, the extended opportunity for female athletes, we have huge rosters of players who have needs and wants within the sport as well. And I think taking away some of the opportunities for those kids to play in meaningful games or even just games, period, um, could lead to some unintended consequences at the bottom end of our roster. And, um, you know, I think... When I talked to my kids about this three years ago, um, you know, some of the feedback I got was, well, if, if I'm not in the top 15 and playing in the fall, this means I won't play in the spring either. And, you know, why would I train five, four or five days a week and never, ever, ever get to play a game for four years? And I think that's pretty powerful from those kids. Whereas the top five players on my roster are thinking, wow, this would be pretty cool. You know, I'd get more recovery. I could play at a higher level. I could develop better as a player, and it would help me become a pro. So I think there's a distinction there that needs to be made. And um, I think uh, I'm not necessarily against trying to help the best players achieve their goals, but, you know, we also have a job to do for these other kids who who just want to be part of the program and, and you know, represent the school. Well, and that's one of your points as well. On the men's side, you're saying this is why U.S. soccer and MLS are certainly all in 
because the elite players are their concern, and you're still seeing a lot of them make MLS rosters or go overseas. But the other 90% of the players on our rosters, that's what you're saying, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, in, in the women's game, the only players I'm familiar with who have skipped college soccer completely to go pro is Mallory Pugh, and then, gosh, before that, the, the national team player who went to PSG. Lindsay Horan. Yeah. yeah, Horan. And so, you know, I know on the men's side that's a big concern as so many kids are going straight to Europe or straight to MLS and they're not going to college. And maybe this model would help them retain some of those players on the men's side. Um, it's certainly not happening right now on the women's women's side. Um, and I don't anticipate that. If I read correctly, NWSL, the average loss per team was over a million dollars last year. So I don't know that it's ever going to become so appealing to the women's players that they're all going to start skipping out on college to go pro. Um, I just don't think that's a thing for us. And, you know, I, again, that's where I think there has to be a distinction between what the women are looking to do and what the men are trying to do. How about the issue of mental health? That certainly has been a key argument for uh, the 21st century model for the men. What's your take on the mental health issue with our players? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously I think every one of us that's involved in coaching right now is very in tune with the mental health issues. It's become a a big uh, focus within the media about not just NCAA athletes, but just professional athletes, youth athletes, everything. Um, But I think it's a stretch to think that if we went to this year-round model that the mental health of our athletes would necessarily improve. It might, but it might not. It might actually make it worse. Um, So if you're a player right now in college soccer, your high-stress period is basically August to December. And then I would imagine your lower-stress period from an athletic standpoint would be, you know, January through May. Uh, If we go year-round, that sort of high-intensity high demand, high pressure situation is extended. So I would argue that would that possibly cause more of a mental impact on our kids than what they do right now. I, I don't think any of us have the answer to that, but I certainly think it's a it's worth talking about. I'm not sure this model solves that issue. And the other thing I think is if we if we think that, you know, there's been a spike with mental health issues with athletes, I think we just have to correlate that to society. Um, I think the spike is the same whether you're an athlete or not. There's just higher incidences of mental health issues throughout the society, whether you're an athlete or a non-athlete. We're here with Colin Carmichael, the talented head coach for the Oklahoma State women's soccer team, giving his legitimate concerns about not going to the 21st century model for women. This after you heard Amanda Cromwell from UCLA saying she is for it. One of your final uh, uh, points is a good one, talking about the Friday-Sunday cycle. It sounds like in your league you've been going more to Thursday-Sunday anyway, and then you also said that that's exactly what's going on in Europe and the professional landscape. So make your point on the Friday-Sunday moving to Thursday-Sunday problem solved. Yeah, you know, I think the sports science, there's, you know, in the 21st century model, the coaches are citing a lot of sports science studies, and I agree that, uh, you know, this Friday-Sunday um, cycle that we've been in in college soccer is not good. Heck, when I played, it was Saturday-Sunday. Um, and that, that that cannot be good for recovery and injury prevention. Um, so I think a lot of us have gone to Thursday-Sunday for that reason. And um, I can only speak for our own program. Uh, we, we went to it this year, and it seems to have, I wouldn't say eliminated those concerns, but, but minimized those fatigue injuries. Um, so I think, you know, going to that, 
could be a solution. The other thing, you know, everybody said, well, playing one game a week is bringing us up to date with the 21st century. I, I disagree. Uh, most of the top leagues are playing more than once a week now, the top athletes. They're playing Thursday, Sunday, and when you ask, or Wednesday, Saturday, or, you know, whatever the breakdown might be, and when you ask all those players, would you rather train or play, I think we all know what the answer is. Um, they would rather play games. So, you know, I think saying that we're going to train four days, five days a week and play one game sounds great that we're going to develop all these great players, but, you know, there's a lot of development that goes on in games as well. And if you don't get to play competitive games, I'm not sure how much development you can have in training. So, um, you know, I think it's about getting the balance right. I, I, I would be more in tune, I think, for an extended season, you know, give us an extra week at the beginning of the season to acclimatize, acclimatize the kids properly. Um, and then extend the season a week at the end so that maybe in the regular season there's three or four one-day weekends and a lot of Thursday-Sundays as opposed to Friday-Sundays. I think we might see some benefit there without changing a system that has actually, quite frankly, has been very successful for women's college soccer. Our attendances seem to be very good. The interest in our sport in the fall seems to be very high. We're not competing with baseball and softball and tennis and wrestling and golf and all the other sports that go through the spring. So I think there's a lot of positives there. You know, so that that's kind of what I would ask us maybe to consider instead right now is trying to spread out the Thursday-Sunday games, extend the season by a week at the front and the back. And I think we address some of the concerns that have gotten the men leaning towards this other uh, – so if they do extend it uh, based on what you're saying there, because you also make the point that, you know, hey, on the women's side, our national team has won the last two World Cups, and even the other teams that are starting to challenge the USA have players that have competed collegially in the United States, and those are all valid points. In fact, perhaps our college system has helped the other nations catch up to the U.S. women, which is, is saying something. And as you offer this idea of extending it, what would be your recommendation for championship weekend? Because that's also a key point that Sasso Swarovski and the men's side has been pushing in that, you know, there you go on Friday, Sunday, where on Friday you're given everything just for a chance at Sunday, and then oftentimes you have absolutely nothing left on Sunday. So how would you handle the championship weekend? Would you just do Thursday, Sunday, keep it rolling like that? Yeah, I think if, um, you know, most of the Power 5 leagues are playing a lot of Thursday, Sundays right now. Um, that's been a sort of last three or four-year development. The ACC, the SEC, we do it in the Big 12. and I'm sure the Big 10 does some for TV and things like that. I know the Pac-12 has some weekends like that. So I think if we went to that and we had the NCAA tournament set up, you know, right now the first, uh, on the women's side, the first weekend is a, is a one-game weekend. So you get plenty of rest there. The second weekend, you're playing two games. It's the second round and then the Sweet 16. The third weekend is a one-game quarterfinal, and then you got the final four. So I think those double weekends, if you went Thursday, Sunday, you're getting that extra day's rest. I think that would solve some of that issue. Um, you know, the other thing I would say as far as the rest and, you know, everybody talks about the sports science, we got to understand as well that if we have meaningful games coming up in the spring, our kids are doing two preseasons. Um, and, it, you know, as a former athlete, that's the last thing I wanted to do was two preseasons, you know. So they would do a preseason in August to prepare for the fall. They would return in January and do another preseason to prepare for February's games. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. The winter workouts would now become like summer workouts. So when they go home for winter break, they're now not just sort of training to maintain fitness. They're training to get ready for the second part of the season. 
so it, it becomes less voluntary and more mandatory. So they have to do that summer and and winter, and then you know little things like spring break that goes away. No nobody sending their kids to Padre Island or you know Panama City Beach for a week and then coming back and saying oh we got conference games coming up. Uh, so they don't really get that break anymore. And then um, you know the kids will play right into June. Um, so when our school finishes in May, they're going to play a championship season into June. And then we're going to ask them to come back August 1 for preseason, which means they actually have less downtime in the summer. So, like I said, I, I just think that we might be creating some unforeseen issues by trying to solve some issues that maybe we can solve other ways. What is your response to Randy's counter, uh, particularly on the issue of stress, when he says uh, that analytics say that the students actually do better when they're playing. So the more they're playing, the better their grades are, they're more focused, that type of thing. And then also the fact that you mentioned, you know, hey, they want games. Now, granted, it's probably more practice than they want, but uh, the idea of this model would actually add games from 20 to, to 23. What's your counter to those two points? Yeah, well, first with the games, the added games would only apply to your top 14 or 15 kids who get to play. Um, the other 15 kids on my roster, those added games would be meaningless because they all count towards our championship, so they're not going to play anyway. Um, if you have a men's team with a roster of 19, probably a better chance of all those kids being involved. But, you know, with Title IX, our school are not going to allow me to reduce our roster. It's just not feasible. And I would imagine most of the Power Fives that have a big football program are in the same boat. So the, the added games are only going to be beneficial to the top kids who are playing every week, not the other 15 or 16 who their only realistic chance of playing right now is that non-traditional spring season. Uh, the academic piece is interesting. I don't doubt that that study exists and that it, that it could show that they do better in the fall. But I would counter that by saying I know what we do in the fall. We encourage our kids to take lower uh, workloads. So they may take 12 to 15 hours in the, in the fall. And then in the spring, because we don't have the added stress of playing meaningful games, we encourage them to take maybe 15 to 18 hours. The other thing I know our kids' academic advisors do is if there's some tough classes like Chem 2 where you've got labs, they try to set those up on the schedule where they take them in the non-traditional part, which for us is the spring. Uh, that way they're not missing as many labs and tests and maybe tougher courses in the fall. So I think that I think there's a little bit more to that than just, oh, they're focused in the fall because they're in season. I think maybe their workloads and the type of classes they're encouraged to take can affect that GPA as well. Finally, Colin, Colin, Michael, as we know where Randy and Amanda stand, we know where you stand with very good points. As this thing moves forward, if uh, I don't know right now if it's 50-50 or where it stands with all the coaches, but let's say it moves forward, the men pass and the women and Anson and some other coaches jump in, and all of a sudden it's 80-20 or 85-15. How hard will it be for them to convert you if you're on that side of the 15? Well, I, I think, first of all, you know, there's a lot of really smart people that are involved in this conversation, and I was having a conversation with a peer yesterday, actually last night about this. Why don't we let the men do it and see how it goes? I mean, why why jump headlong into something that we don't know? We've got questions. We're not quite sure how it's going to go. If the men do this for a two-year cycle and it's the best thing in the world, let's jump on board. Um, if the men do it for a two-year cycle and it's not as great as they think it is and all these other things come up that, that they hadn't thought about, then we know it's not a good thing. So um, I, I, I would lean towards encouraging 
coaches. If the men want to do it, I don't have a dog in that fight. That's really up to them. And um, good luck. I, I, I honestly hope it'd be great for all the athletes and it'd be great for the sport. Um, and if it is, why don't we jump in at that point? Because right now there's so many questions I have and so many unknowns that um, if we jump in, you know, going all guns blazing on this thing and three years from now we're looking back going, well, that was a really bad idea. How do we come back to our administrators and say, oh, by the way, that that was really bad. We'll get, <laughs> can we go back to the way it was, please? Um, I just don't know that that's the right way to move forward. Colin Carmichael, very articulate in your point. It's great to be reconnected with you. Thanks for letting me have a little laugh as well. If you, if you happen to run into Garth, say, hey, that broadcaster's still uh, make, making some money off of the tap on your belly there. So I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, good luck in the NCAA tournament. Really appreciate your time and your points. And thanks, Colin. All right, Dean. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you. Up next, we visit with Samantha Snow. She is the Women's Advocacy Group Chair for United Soccer Coaches. She's also the Executive Director of the Georgia Soccer Partners. Sam Snow. Looking for ways to improve your training sessions? Quick Goal has supplied the highest quality soccer goals, seating, field, and training equipment for over 30 years. From backyards to the world's greatest pitches, Quick Goal has products essential for every level of the game. As an official partner to the United Soccer Coaches and technical partner to U.S. Soccer, Quick Goal knows what equipment you need to take your game to the next level. Visit quickgoal.com to satisfy all your equipment needs. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. We hope you enjoyed the conversation on the pro and cons of the 21st century model, particularly with Amanda Cromwell saying that the women should also join in, and then Colin Carmichael, the talented coach from Oklahoma State, saying, hang on, let's pump the brakes here, maybe let the men run it a couple years that way, and we'll see if we want to jump in. Switching gears just a little bit, but still with a heavy focus on women's soccer, we're so pleased to be joined by Samantha Snow. She is the chair of the Women's Advocacy Group for United Soccer Coaches. And then also her full-time job is the executive director of the Georgia Soccer Partners, located just outside of Atlanta. She has long been involved in education with United Soccer Coaches. In fact, she's a former player that played at Columbus State for a couple of years for Jay Entlake, who's been on this program before. We're a big fan of Jay. And, of course, Jay also coached the North Carolina Courage back in their first time around. So we like that tie-in. And with that, Samantha Snow. She goes by Sam Snow. Sam, thanks for being on the show with us. Yeah, thank you, Dean. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, we're excited because, uh, you know, now more than ever, the focus on women's soccer is just amazing. Sellout crowd last Sunday at Wakeman Soccer Park. The North Carolina Courage won another title. The crowds for college soccer all over the country have been great. No matter what level, it's been amazing. And we're getting more women involved, thanks to the great work at United Soccer Coaches and the work you are doing. The women won the World Cup. I mean, it just what could be better right now than women's soccer, right, Sam? I know it is a great time to be involved at any level, even as a fan. There's something for everybody. So i got to believe it's a great time to be the chair of the Women's Advocacy Group for United Soccer Coaches. What made you want to take on that role? You know, it wasn't actually something I thought about. It was just one of those opportunities that presented itself. I wanted to get more involved, and Missy Price had asked if I wanted to join the leadership team of the advocacy group uh, when she was chair. And then, of course, Missy Price was then elected to the board of United Soccer Coaches. So Carla Thompson took over, and Carla is just beginning her new role at that time um, with U.S. Soccer. 
And so she asked if I'd like to be co-chair and kind of help along with her. Um, so I, I knew I wanted to get involved. I just didn't realize it was going to be in this capacity, but it happened the way it was supposed to. And now I, I couldn't be more thrilled with what I do. And Haley Carter is a um, co-chair as well now, or associate chair. So working with her has been absolutely great, and we've got some big things planned this year and for the convention as well. Uh, we love Haley Carter on this program as well. She is a fantastic young woman for sure. So what a great combo you got going there. And, you know, as you go to the convention more and more every year, you see more and more women in big roles, more and more women that are featured clinicians, more and more women that are on panels, and more importantly, more and more women that are becoming coaches and going through the courses. So with that, I know that uh, in your role with the Women's Advocacy Group, you've got a lot of big events planned for this year's convention in Baltimore. I'll let you have the floor to talk about it. Okay, yeah. So obviously our, our biggest two events that we're always the most excited about is the Social for Women's Coaches, which is the Friday night of the convention, and it's open to anyone. You coach women, girls soccer, you are invited. And Becky Burley has been running that social for for many years, and she always puts on a, a great job. And she even mentioned she has light-up shoes this year, so it will be very exciting. <laughs> and then the uh, <laughs> the other exciting part about our social is that's when we announce the winner of the Charlotte Moran Memorial Scholarship. Um, so that's always a, a nice highlight, too. And then we, we look back on Charlotte. There's a nice slideshow that they put together. So just remembering her and the contributions that she made to the game. And then, of course, just getting together, networking with, you know, people that you see on the other side of the field. Now we get to see them, you know, together and enjoying each other's company. Because um, it is. It's just one big soccer family. And then our next event that we're always the most excited about is, of course, our women's breakfast. Um, Saturday morning, it's at 8 o'clock, it's early, but it's totally worth it. And we are excited this year because we have Kelly Nasamanto de Luca as our keynote speaker. And she's Pele's daughter, and she is a documentary uh, producer. She produced um, The Real Pele and ESPN Sports Century um, early 2000, so we're real excited to have her. And it's just, it's going to be probably the, the biggest, most exciting breakfast we've had in a few years. So we are very much looking forward to it. And Amanda Vandervoort is coming back to NC for us as well. And it's always a good time when Amanda's around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who doesn't have a good time around Amanda, right? Uh, in about <laughs> exactly. women at the forefront of pushing uh, the message for women in athletics. I mean, I mean, it seems like she's even bigger than just soccer, just women in sports in general, right? Yeah, exactly, and that's why we think it's the the perfect time. You know, we're so happy that Amanda agreed to come back and achieve for us because it's just, again, it's not about, you know, what your role is, even if it's just being a fan, but just women in sports in, in general is, is huge because it's such a vehicle, you know, for social change and for empowerment of young girls. So we're we're just so excited for it. Well, you're also heavily involved in education, and we're going to offer the National Diploma at the convention, which I think the first time we've done the full National Diploma at the convention. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but uh, education is important to you. You're going to be involved in that too, right? Absolutely, yes. I'm real excited about that. So I'll be teaching along with Vince Gansberg, who we all know and love. I mean, he's just incredibly smart and talented, and he's just got a way of teaching about him. Um, he, he's a great mentor to me, and uh, Dave Simeone. So the three of us will be teaching, and it's going to be the first time, yeah, you're correct, um, that we're having this 
diploma at the convention, and it's something real special because there's so many coaches that I've talked to, men and women, um, that, you know, you ask, hey, are you going to the convention? And it's, ah, I can only afford, you know, the coaching course or convention, so I'm going to the course or I'm going to the convention. I had to choose you know, between the two. And now you don't have to choose. You can get both of them in. And for anyone who's worried about maybe missing some of the convention because they're going to be involved in the course, I think it starts a little bit earlier. Um, it starts on the Monday and it goes through Sunday, and then we're actually working in convention sessions that are part of the course as well. So there's there's still and there'll still be free time as well, just like at any course. So you can go to the sessions that you know you, you pick that you'd want to go to as well. But it's it's real exciting and it's just great because it's such a wonderful opportunity to get get more coaches involved and seeing the importance of the education and then also the networking and kind of informal education that the convention brings. So now it's that blend of the formal and informal, and it's just one great package that, you know, I wouldn't you want to take advantage of it. Well said. We're hearing the energy and passion of Pam Snow. She is the chair of the Women's Advocacy Group for United Soccer Coaches and, as I told you earlier, the executive director of Georgia Soccer Partners. Uh, as you think about beyond the convention and in your role, and knowing all of the remarkable headway that women have made in the sport of soccer, what might be one or two key initiatives that uh, you want to start looking to build on this year in your role? Yeah, so, and you couldn't see earlier, Dean, with my passion, I, my hands were flying all over the place. <laughs> uh, the, the things that we're looking for with our Women's Advocacy Group is we want to do the simple things well. And we want to get back to being relevant within the organization, within the membership, and really representing and being that support for women in coaching. Um, so we've relaunched uh, our newsletter, and our second edition went out not too long ago. The third edition is going to be going out in December right before convention where we're going to highlight all things convention. But this newsletter is really great because – we we highlight coaches that are up and coming, you know, that are, are starting to make a name for themselves and really trying to help promote them and get them out there and give them that confidence too, like, you know, yes, I, this can be a profession for me. This this is what I want to do. Um, so we, we've highlighted some youth coaches. Uh, we've highlighted our uh, pro coach, and it's just about – you know, getting a voice for these women that are in the game because we hear how low numbers are in the game, but there are still, even though it may be low numbers, there are still some quality women out there. So we want to make sure that we're promoting them and showing those that are maybe one foot in the door, one foot out, like, hey, yeah, you can do this, and you've got people around that are going to support you too, and our group is part of that. Um, but so we've got the newsletter. The next thing is getting quality women presenters at the convention, which Lisa Cole, who's the director of goalkeeping um, education, uh, she's done a great job of ensuring that we've got some quality female presenters in Baltimore and um, you know, making sure that we're representing everybody and highlighting those that, that are doing good things in the game. Because you are doing great things in the game, not just with United Soccer Coaches, but in your role as executive director of Georgia Soccer Partners. Tell us a little bit about your role as executive director and what Georgia Soccer Partners does. And if you can, kind of maybe even say how you've used your time at United Soccer Coaches to help that organization. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I've been here now. Um, I'm into my fourth year. I was coaching college soccer for 10 years before this, and then uh, after my daughter was diagnosed with autism, decided to get back in the youth game, and uh, after a couple options and opportunities, this seemed to be the right fit. And it's amazing because we have our grassroots program, which is Blue Springs Youth Soccer. There's 850 kids playing in it from three years all the way to 18, 19 years, still in high school. And then um, we have our select program, Liberty Soccer, which is still, I mean, it's a community club, but we're offering that higher level for kids that want to play with their, their friends from school. You know, they don't want to be traveling all over the place. So still offering that with them and offering an option for those families where siblings can still play in the same location. And then Creekside Sports Center, which is our indoor facility about 12 miles down the road from our outdoor fields, we've, again, we've got, you know, 450 kids playing year-round in our indoor youth league, which is grassroots. We've got our kick-a-roof program, three- and four-year-olds, and then we've got adult leagues that are playing every day of the week. So... From three years to, I think our oldest player at the moment at the indoor center is 75 years. There's something for everybody. You know, the whole family can be involved, and it's it's just a lot of fun coming up here and seeing you know, the generations enjoying. And one of the cool things too that I really love about it is, I mean, soccer just it brings everybody together. And one of the stories that I love to share is that we have um, groups that come in and rent our fields as well. We have people that have been renting the fields at the indoor center since we opened 12 years ago. And one of our groups that's been consistently coming in is a group of Bosnians. And there were two guys one night that finally figured out that 15 years ago they were fighting against each other in the same town on the same day, different sides of the Civil War, and now they're here, buds, playing soccer every Thursday night. Sam Snow, you can tell, folks, she always has fun doing what she loves, and uh, we love that she's now the chair of the Women's Advocacy Group for United Soccer Coaches. We'll see her in Baltimore. She's also going to be involved in that national diploma, as we just told you. Sam Snow, thanks for all the work you do for soccer and for women in soccer. We certainly appreciate you. Yeah, thank you, Dean. I appreciate all you do as well in advocating for the women's game. I, I love it. All right. Please tell Jay out like I said hello, okay? Absolutely, Dean. <laughs> Quick break. Come back. Michael Bates, 30 Under 30 member, United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by Team Snap. Team Snap's awesome. I have five teams on Team Snap. There are no questions asked by the players, the parents. Very easy to use. Very, very, very easy. Simple to use, everyone, you know, everything's right there. Messages, availability, boom, boom, boom. I've looked at other at other things and I think Team Snap sets the bar for this type of team management software. It's the best that I found. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. Time to meet some more members of the 30 under 30 class. We're almost all the way done and we get it done today with Michael Bates, who is part of the Santa Clara men's coaching staff with Cam Rath. Cam was a member of the 1992 U.S. Olympic team. He also played for Santa Clara, so great to have Michael Bates, who also played at Santa Clara and a member of the 30 Under 30. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, delighted to be with you and get to know you a little bit, and obviously Santa Clara has been a special place for you. You played there, and now you've been on the coaching staff for a little while. Why Santa Clara? What makes you love it so much? 
Well, Santa Clara is obviously a special place. Uh, it's been great to me both, you know, in the classroom and on the soccer field. It's just, I, I, lo- I love Santa Clara because it's a tight-knit family. Um, it's a good community. Everybody looks out for each other, both on the field, on the job, and in the personal life. So, you know, I have nothing but respect and nothing but love for the university and for everybody that works there. Well, and I think Cam feels the same way. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Cam may have even won a national championship at Santa Clara. Was he on that team that won the national championship back when uh, Steve Sampson was coach? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's actually pretty funny that you mentioned that. Just a couple weeks ago, um, we had a 30-year, or excuse me, 40-year celebration um, for the 89 national championship. And so they had all the members of that, you know, team here, and they had a nice, we had a nice little dinner. Um, and all the alumni gave a talk to our current boys, um, and we watched, and they came out and watched the game against uh, the St. Mary game. So it was funny, funny bring, you bring that up. We just had a celebration commemorating that that win. Well, it's it's important to celebrate that because it also makes you realize, you know, hey, we can do this again, right? At the end of the day, you got a chance. Uh, everybody in in men's college soccer's got a chance, right? So the boys might as well believe they can get it done, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the great thing about soccer is it's anybody's game any given Sunday or, for that matter, any any given Saturday. Uh, And it's always good to to show the current players the rich tradition that Santa Clara has in the past and the fact that, you know, all those guys, they were successful um, way back when, but, you know, they care about the current team. They care about the university and the program now. So that's always, again, shows you about – the family and the community that's uh, at this university. Here with Michael Bates. He's from Sacramento originally. He was in Florida a bit with the U.S. under-17 program before then going to college back in California at Santa Clara. What do you remember about your days with the U.S. under-17 team and your time in Florida, Michael? Oh, man. It was it was the true definition of work hard, play hard. Um, it was one of the some of the hardest years ever uh, in terms of playing soccer, but it was the most fun and most rewarding. Um, I can get, there's so many, so many examples. There's so many people, so many uh, experiences that I've had. Um, one is just you know having an opportunity uh, playing in the Youth World Cup in Korea in 2007. Um, and just seeing all the work that was put in for the previous two years, from the previous two years, coming culmination and competing against international talent was just amazing. It was amazing. Um, and, you know, every time on the field, just take a deep breath, look around you and appreciate, you know, where soccer has brought me or where it's taken me was just, it, I, I really can't explain, can't explain the type of feeling that I had, uh, each game. It was, Amazing. And then, Michael, what made you want to go into coaching as you finished up your time at Santa Clara? When did you know you wanted to be a coach? What did you What did you do right after you graduated? Well, you know, coming off the previous question of, you know, just playing for the U-17, being in residency for two and a half years, having a mentor like John Hackworth, uh, Brian Mazenoff, uh, Keith Falk, um, Raul Villas-Arce, you know, it's it's instilled a strong passion for soccer here in America, especially youth soccer. Um, and so I wanted to give back just because youth soccer and the game of soccer has given me so much. Um, and that's where it start, started. And before I started coaching here at Santa Clara University, I was, well, currently I'm still coaching, but I'm coaching at a youth club in the Mountain View, Los Altos area. Um, and I wanted to give back to the youth. And then, you know, I'm just a big proponent of always moving up the ladder. I want to progress, I want to progress. 
Um, and I stayed close with Cam and Yamo. Opportunity presented itself, and I wanted to help out on the collegiate side as well. Um, and that's where I am now. I just love giving back to the sport of soccer here in America just because it's given me so much. What made you want to be a member of the 30 under 30 class, Mr. Bates? Well, you know, it, it's funny you say that, you know, um, when I started getting, you know, real invested into my coaching, um, you know, the networking and going to the conventions, um, I saw the program and saw how much that it, how much it offered, uh, to the class, to the previous classes, uh, getting to know new coaches, getting to, or, Opening up conversation of picking other coaches' brains um, was very, very, very intriguing for me. And so I just said, hey, why not? Let's sign up and uh, see if I get selected. And I was super, super fortunate uh, to be selected, and it's been great ever since. Who's your mentor with United Soccer Coaches, and who also would you be consider some of your other mentors? Brett Simon. He used to coach at uh, Stanford. He's currently the AD over at uh, Menlo Park or Menlo High School. Um so we've had conversations, and he, and he showed me the ropes, especially, you know, this being my first season, my first year at Santa Clara. He showed me the ropes uh, of what collegiate coaching is all about. Um, and so big shout-out to him. Um, some other mentors that have showed me the ropes are just um, Albertine Montoya, Cam Rath, Eric Yamamoto. Those have been guys that I've looked up to, um, guys that, you know, has showed me the ropes in their own little different ways of what it's like to not only be successful but to be a class human being, uh, a class human being in this uh, in this in this industry in this game. Um, so big shout out to all four of those guys. Finally, Michael, if you could close your eyes and have the perfect dream as it relates to your professional career, what would be your ideal dream job, maybe five ten years from now? Funny you ask that. <laughs> I'm thinking about this as I'm kind of planning out what I want to do. But I think I would say that I've reached my ultimate goal and, you know, I've completed the pinnacle of what I wanted to do if I were to one day be on the coaching staff of the youth uh, national team. Um, I, it, would just be, it would just come full circle, you know, where I've started and, you know, the programs that have given me or instilled so much passion and love for the game, um, I want to be able to give back in that same realm. Um, so my ultimate goal uh, would be to one day be on the coaching staff of the youth national team. I like it. And you certainly got the personality and the go-with-it attitude to get it done. Michael Bates, good luck the rest of your college soccer season and with your youth coaching as well. Pleasure to spend some time with you. Congrats on being a member of the 30 Under 30. Thanks, Dean. I appreciate it. We certainly appreciate Michael and all of the members of our 30 Under 30 class. I want to thank all of our guests today as well. Rob Kehoe, Director of College Programs for United Soccer Coaches. Amanda Cromwell, Head Coach of the UCLA Women's Soccer Team. Colin Carmichael, Head Coach of the Oklahoma State Women's Soccer Team. Samantha Snow, who is the Chair of the Women's Advocacy Group for United Soccer Coaches. And, of course, the aforementioned Michael Bates. I want to thank Michael Knipper, Sean Chevrolet, and all the great folks at United Soccer Coaches for each and every one of them. I'm Dean Linky. See you same time, same channel next week for another edition of our United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Team Snaps.